The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. <laughs> well, good. Look, on, on that laughter, let's start our, our third official podcast. This is Chris and this is... Neil Modi. <laughs> this is Chris Idell, or the other way around. I'm Neil Modi, and he's yes, Chris Idell. Yes, this is Chris on this end. But uh, Neil, you, I guess we always need an MC. You can't introduce yourself, huh? <laughs> we can have Ian do it next time. Uh, this is our mm-hmm. third official podcast, uh, and we're going to finish off talking a little bit further about what made Chris such a good investor, um, and we. We went through a bunch of different things, so I'm just going to do a recap on that. Uh, it was A lot of it was ex- his experiences and his highs to lows. Then he started to study history in great depth, uh, along with credit cycles. He learned how to do fundamental analysis of a company, how to value a company. Going through the recession was, was pretty important to him. And then starting to understand the difference between the commodity pricing and the, the credit cycle and the credit risk at the moment. Um, so along with all of the different people we've talked about, I thought there were a few more things we should ask Chris about to understand a little further about his process. And they include New Orleans jazz, growing up in New Orleans, being an outsider, um, and, uh, just his daily process. So, so Chris, where, where should we take our, our, our last stabs at just trying to build up a better understanding of you? Where, where do you want to start? Oh, I guess um, upbringing and then the process, um, how I incorporate those things might make sense in terms of the flow. But, um, you know, I um, growing up in New Orleans, and especially as a music lover, you could really see um, um, the improvisational nature of jazz. And also um, the feedback loops that it creates. I um, I can never understand fully, though I appreciate it, um, how classical musicians can do it. Um, in in jazz, especially New Orleans jazz, where I grew up, there was immediate feedback. Um, it might even lead to what uh, George Soros has, has called um, um, that. Um, what does he call it? Reflex reflex reflexology, reflexism. I can't remember his term, but he's just saying that, you know, the... Ian, help us out with that term. Yeah, Ian, help us. Reflexology. Today, reflexology, yeah. Yeah, that um, um, obviously nothing happens in a vacuum, and uh, each event carries with it um, some reaction to that event. And with human nature, uh, the the tendency is um, to uh, try to limit or reduce change. Now, this is not um, from jazz. This is now moving on to kind of the Soros thing. But you know, nothing uh, happens in a vacuum. And when one change occurs, there are second, third, and fourth order effects that we have to consider. Most people only consider the first order effects, right? the price of something falls or rises, they want more of it or less of it. Um, but 
as always, there are many other effects. So um, I think about that. I think about um, how the process itself, the journey is better than the end. So making sure that you uh, really are enjoying the process and stepping lightly <laughs> as you go. Um, I was uh, pretty serious um, and kind of humorless about this when I was younger. <laughs> so I've become less so now. Um, and I think that's kind of important too because, you know, um, the, the markets carry with them a tremendous amount of wisdom. Um, it's no joke when it's um, stated that it's difficult to beat the market, but uh, the wisdom of the markets, just uh, the millions of minds that are in the market. And if you're buying a stock, if you're making an investment while others are selling, what makes you so sure you're right? All right? <laughs> Alan Greenspan said this about the dot-com bubble. To say that there's a bubble is to disagree with millions of investors. Now, <laughs> that was him being disingenuous. But I mean it very seriously that uh, when you think about um, the reasons you're buying, you have to make sure they're buttoned down or the reasons you're selling um, and understand what the other side of the trade is thinking as best you can. And uh, that creates the pattern for me to think about why this might be a good investment when others don't feel it's a good investment. Um, but there's also so, other redeeming factors. Wait, so, so take us through like your daily process. I mean, I remember, I, I think I've had to, to pull it out of you, like pulling a, a tooth from a tiger at moments. But it seemed to me that your entire daily process led you to be a little bit better. So I understand a little bit more about your process of how you're looking at things, and, and hopefully so does the rest of the folks who are listening in. Uh, but it, it seemed just the way you woke up and had a daily process every day, you tried to read the news at the end of the evening um, after you'd taken a moment for being peaceful and letting go of everything through meditation. Just t take us through that process and how that's affected the way you look at the markets today. Yeah, so when I um, take, rise take in the that morning, day. I, yeah. yeah, when I rise in the morning, I, um, it's my specific um, charge not to um, turn on the news or look at anything. I, um, I, I want, and I go into uh, meditation. I wash up and get myself ready and then, begin my meditation and what I really think about is the the previous the prior day's news again remember what we call news is already stale so that it's a day more stale is not <laughs> going to influence me and I don't want to feel um, anxious or that I have to make a decision remember whenever we feel compelled to do something with urgency, it's coming from a place of scarcity. Um, this is something I've learned over the years. You feel that you have to sell a stock because it's down, even during the trading day, to react to the market, Mr. Market's pricing, is um, to react from a place of scarcity. Um, so I don't want to be in that position anyway. I, um, 
I'll wake up after um, I'll kind of review some of the things I've read from the previous day occasionally if I've made some notes and then I'll I'll um, meditate for 30 minutes sometimes 45 minutes in the morning um, and then I run some screens to look at um, the new lows <laughs> companies that have certain features uh, low price to book value um, really mostly value oriented screens um, and then think about those in the context of what um, has been unfolding with the global economic order um, and I just uh, kind of carry those with me um, into the into the morning and, and uh, plan my day which companies do I think would be good subjects for research for deeper research they're on the screen. They seem to fit in with the news flow as being a potential opportunity. Um, and I always try to conduct my research in the right order. So I don't want to um, pull up analyst reports or anything where I'm in someone else's, um, where I'm using their analysis. Yeah, so really, um, kind of straightforward, just um, um, making sure I don't have anything that um, influences my decision um, or creates any shortcuts in my mind, any kind of uh, potential for intellectual laziness I want to guard against. So um, the, the analyst research reports, et cetera, and a lot of that material, of course, from Wall Street is very promotional. Um, they're not providing useful information, but trying to move stock um, or move an investment. So it's, um, again, very sales-oriented. And I also don't want to be in the Salesforce field, <laughs> which uh, I can be susceptible to just like any other human being. So, um, But then I'm really building an investment thesis, right, uh, looking at the 8K, I'm sorry, the 8Q, the 10K, those reports, looking at the annual report from the company, what are they communicating? Uh, more importantly, what are they not communicating? Reading the footnotes, um, which is sometimes where I start, <laughs> because that tells you a lot about what management's trying to communicate or what they're trying to hide. So, so Chris, so, this takes you to what, 7.30 in the morning, and then you go do your workout, walk your dogs? I, I'm really trying to get a better understanding of the rest of your day and why that makes oh, sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. So in the um, four days a week, I'll do um, I'll run or I'll ride my bike. Now that it's warming up, I can ride again. Um, so I'll do a little cardiovascular exercise in the morning um, uh, after my meditation, and then um, walk my dogs, whatever it is that I can do. And then um, I'll come back with. Uh, and, and run the screens and then look at these uh, companies that um, match these value screens I typically will run against uh, kind of the news flow, just thinking about that. And then trying to sift through that list for the ideas that might be worthy of further um, exploration. So then what part of your day, after you find ideas that are worthy, what part of your day is meeting clients? What part of your day is research? What part of your day is getting pitched by all the people who come through your office? You know, until you uh, get home to see yeah. 
your wife and child? Yeah, each um, day's a little bit different. Um, so I, you know, now it's a, so lovely. I mean, Ian, you won't remember these old days, but we used to have to call the investor relations department and ask them to mail us out their catalog annual report. Now everything's just downloadable. So I'll, um, I break my day out. It depends. Each day is a little different. Mondays and Fridays, I've uh, reserved uh, kind of sacred time to do um, planning, admin, but also research. Um, on investing uh, investment ideas during the weekdays, um, usually uh, there's time in uh, block time in the morning uh, and afternoons for client meetings or meetings with my team uh, staff, my business partner. Um, so those happen usually Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But still, there's also time reserved for um, uh, flex time reserved for doing uh, additional research as I need it. Um, but a lot of that happens in the mornings and then the evening um, and on the weekends. So then what's your typical evening like? I know you must be reading some news before you sleep or, or yeah, you're probably writing a lot. Read. Yeah, yeah I, um, I write in the evening um, before I read the, do the news reading. That I do. I probably read though during the day um, anywhere from uh, 150 to 200 pages. I just generally um, on different companies and businesses. Uh, that's daily, in addition to you know whatever books or whatever I'm I'm reading. So um, yeah, I don't know. I try to organize that information in a way that supports the research and um, answers the questions I, I line out. Um, so I don't know if I was um, disconnected from you before, but I said that you know as I um, sift through the, the list from my screens that I've run and think about those um, companies that populate the, those lists, I try to, to um, To build a, um, a thesis, a kind of manifesto for making an investment. Like if I sift through it and I find, for example, Horsehead Holdings is a zinc manufacturer <laughs> that uh, has this specific uh, process that makes them unique. Um, the company is trading well below book value. What makes this a uh, compelling or potentially compelling investment? Um, and then I start to build that scaffolding. So there are questions I'll have throughout the day, and I'll just you know do the best I can to research those, or read about them, or um, understand you know um, the electroplating process versus the smelter that they were using. So trying to figure out what the different processes are is an example concretely of some of the things I think about during the day. So each day I'm kind of um, taking four or five questions from my morning routine and trying to answer those questions as best I can or seeing where that leads me during the day. So, so take me through uh, why uh, being an outsider has helped you be a better investor and then finally how 
New Orleans and New Orleans jazz seems to permeate every pore of your being and why that may be helpful. <laughs> well, being an outsider is, um, makes one a skeptic, right? Um, it's too easy, I think, when you're in the in crowd um, or you're soaking in, um, I guess, uh, privilege isn't the right word, but, you know, um, if you've never had a chance to be critical of um, the dominant way of thinking, <laughs> and especially if it's not been habit, to be that way, I um, I think you're less well equipped to uh, question the information you get. You know, um, the the Buddha said, "Don't trust anything because I've said it," or "Don't trust anything because some expert or great guru um, or person of great uh, reputation has said it." Trust only your own knowledge and experience. And I'd like to add, don't trust anything just because you read it in an annual report or in the newspaper. So I've always um, agreed with that, that line of thinking and do my best to um, have the knowledge live in my bones and in my muscles by incorporating it as strongly as I can into my experience. Um, and again, that doesn't mean I'll always know. I mean, some things are just not in my circle of competence, but that's okay if I can recognize that and um, it's another way I can eliminate uh, potential mistakes um, in terms of investing by getting outside. And I haven't always done that successfully either, but at least it's uh, one of the, the filters that I think about when I'm thinking about investing. So um, and judging everything with that kind of critical eye. So, um, and how does jazz play into that, right? Again, jazz permeates here in every way of, of being, I think, in some way. I mean, literally, oh, you, 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 your office is the only financial advisor office I've ever been to where there's jazz books all over, not like, you know, yearly financial reports or how to get the best out of your 401k. At the same time, I think a lot of your close friends and, and a lot of your clients are from New Orleans or you've taken them to, to listen to jazz Take me through why that actually affects how that actually affects you in a helpful way. Hi, it's a good question. I think um, jazz is um, well. It's multifaceted. It shows um, what beauty comes out of collaboration. Um, we don't do it alone. So I'm. Um, I am, even though I mentioned that I'm um, skeptical. I also realize that I rely on um, on others, great thinkers, and of course those who um, are running these businesses that I'm thinking of investing in. How do they operate? Do they have operational excellence? Are they, um, you know, all of those things come together. And um, I think uh, you know, jazz is a wonderful art form, and it's entirely. Uh, um, it's improvisational in nature, which doesn't mean it lacks form um, or guidelines. But um, there is that um, reflexology <laughs> in the music, the call, the response, 
the response to what's going on around, to the dancers, to um, the other musicians on the stage. Um, it's amazing. It's really amazing. It reminds me to stay fluid, too, to not be um, too rigid, um, even in uh, my ideas um, about something. So that's really it. I, I try to stay as um, open as I can. I feel like we've gotten to a better understanding to the bottom of, I don't know, as much as a person can get to understand a person, how you look at things. Right now, I think we should go through two more topics before we end. I'm a little curious about how you think the credit cycles are going to affect venture cap capital over the next decade and the available capital to VCs. And also, we typically choose something uh, of current events that we end up talking about uh, and how we actually think the market will be affected by it. Oh, well, gosh. Venture capital is venture, right? It is um, the... Um, investment in an idea that is generally far from its payoff. So your early, early stage investors, um, and thus the cycle is longer. This credit cycle seems to be a doozy. I mean, the, um, the IPO market's been closed really since November, so we haven't seen any um, public offerings, um, which is kind of rare and kind of uh, to me, it certainly gives me a little bit of concern about the direction of the overall credit cycle. But I'd also say, um, I mentioned this credit cycle being a doozy. It's the first time we've really seen participation from every major central bank in this credit creation process. And it's gotten to an extreme level. That can have a couple of different effects, I'd imagine. One is there's a tremendous amount of newly minted capital floating around. <laughs> the Chinese government produced um, or created another trillion dollars in what they call total social financing. One trillion dollars in just a month and a half. This is through February 15th. So um, I don't take that as a sign that um, everything is healthy. I take it as a kind of sign of desperation that the um, the credit cycle has probably turned, and um, China is following the um, process of printing new money to stopgap the old money. <laughs> That's going bad. You know, if you can't pay um, your old debts, you print new money with which to pay them. So it looks optically like those debts are still being serviced. Um, it's a, almost like a Ponzi at this stage. Now, that's my thinking. Um, we'll see if it continues, whether it's confirmed or not. But that would mean that the, the, the credit tide is turning and the, the, the tide's going out, meaning it would be conceivably difficult for everyone to get credit. Um, a lot of credit has been funding uh, venture capital. And, of course, that's been a preference in this cycle, which is unique, too, um, the the public markets have not gotten the same level of attention and funding in many cases as the private markets have and the uh, venture capital and, and private equity markets have. So if that could be sustained even when um, the IPO markets and the public sector, uh, public markets I should say, are, are 
um, seeing the tide go out, that's an open question. But they all seem to be related, as above, so below. So I don't know. I think the next, well, I don't know about 10 years. That's a far, that's looking quite far afield. But I don't know, over the next couple of years, I think um, it could go two ways. It's most likely in my mind that the, the credit markets will be pretty tight. Um, but it's also possible that uh, creditors are just going to be a lot more selective. Um, and they might actually like um, venture deals even more than the public markets. Um, you actually think the downturn potentially could be an even bigger boon for the uh, maybe overpriced venture capital market today. I do. Yeah, I do. And remember, too, I mean, there has been this bifurcation or, um, you know, income inequality, et cetera. The, there's no question that a lot of the rewards of uh, this expansion in liquidity have gone to um, to the wealthier people, and really those are mostly the investment class. So um, I think um, that um, that doesn't go away overnight either. <laughs> and those who have money to invest will continue to have money to invest for the foreseeable future, to borrow again from Alan Greenspan, <laughs> which is probably not the best person to borrow from, but... Yeah, I don't know how much of the future is foreseeable. To me, tomorrow is kind of a mystery. But it's okay. He likes anyway. to borrow a lot too. <laughs> but um, anyway, but yeah. So the the investor class um, um, will they choose? Will they choose more and more um, venture capital? It seems that way. It seems like that space, and you know it, Neil, from your own experience. It's opened up a lot more. There's much more participation. Um, yeah, I mean, it it uh, it could really become the kind of uh, go-to sector. There um, certainly has been um, um, a lot of suspicion and um, mistrust in the public markets um, with high-frequency trading and all of this stuff that's going on. Um, dark pools and et cetera in the bowels of the electronic exchanges. People might choose venture capital because it's it's cleaner and easier. I mean, we're seeing it with many of our clients who just want to invest in alternative investments, um, real estate trusts, things that really concretely they can understand because their um, their feeling is that the public markets are broken. Um, so. Uh, but again, it's possible that could uh, keep the keep a put a floor under the the VCs. Um, but I would expect, you know, this whole thing with the unicorns, <laughs> the Theranoses of the world, um, and the Decacorns, has its own, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 and uh, even even Uber getting to a more reasonable valuation. Um, is uh, probably healthy overall, but uh, uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Chris, I think we should choose one topic before we end today to talk yeah. about in terms of current events. I think we talked about China last time a little bit. 
We talked about the presidential election the time before that. Um, why don't you choose the topic this time that you think a lot of people are asking you about? The Syrian refugee crisis. That, that uh, human crisis of epic proportions is on my mind a lot. So let's go through that. How, how, how is what's going on in Syria going to affect, you know, uh, me in any way or the economy in any way? Well, yeah, I guess um, for us, not necessarily uh, a direct impact, but it does seem almost um, a little bit like the sack of Rome, um, even if indirectly. You know, um, I think the frustration in Europe, of course, is that they have willingly, Brussels, the European Union especially, kind of ceded their foreign policy to Washington. And the neoconservatives in Washington, with this sort of aggressive policy, have created, or at least laid the foundation for this crisis. So there's frustration on the part of European people that this Syrian refugee crisis, this crisis um, originated in Washington, D.C. with our policies, and that um, the Eurozone were tacit um, or like a vassal state, just accepting um, mostly what Washington was doing, and um, this is the result. So there's a, a, certainly a bit of resentment, a strong amount of resentment um, in the Eurozone. It'll probably change our relationship with them in terms of defense, ultimately, um, our foreign policy, um, as the Eurozone, um, as an ally, um, it'll change for them, and, and probably for the better. I think <laughs> it would be good to keep this uh, kind of neoconservative, uh, as it's known, the kind of crystal, uh, William Crystal, this doctrine in a, uh, I'm sorry, Irving Crystal, will kind of keep it in a, um, in a more contained mode and not just have everyone rubber stamping what Washington, D.C. has been doing, um, the policies that are emanating from there. But the humanitarian side of this crisis is great. You know, um, um, when the Romans opened up the, the German Rhine to the Goths, it was meant to keep kind of the German, the, the Teutonic tribes in check by letting the Visigoths, uh, I guess, fight it out with them. But eventually, it was worse than a crime. It was a mistake. Um, and of course, the Goths um, came to be the ones first to sack Rome. <laughs> um, I'm a fan of open borders, generally speaking, and open societies. They let in the best ideas. Um, this is a real challenge to that line of thinking. Um, and um, it's a it's really a uh, very interesting but uh, difficult process to watch unfold. Um, the European economy is already, for the most part, most of the member states are in some form of recession or at or near recession. There's not a whole lot of um, uh, strength economically speaking, to withstand this, this um, is going to cost 
them. Certainly, <laughs> it's costing them now, and so it doesn't mean it's, it certainly seems to push uh, any idea of economic recovery or strength farther out into the future. But I also think with immigration, always, when people are motivated to move, um, they bring a lot of energy. It's like a shot in the arm. Um, you know, every immigrant into America has brought something of value. I'm not a, uh, I'm completely disagreeing with Donald Trump. <laughs> Most of our immigrants are not rapists. <laughs> being, being the son of an immigrant uh, of a par set of parents of immigrants I completely agree yeah oh no man everybody brings some energy to this equation it's amazing guys I think that's all we have time for thank you for joining us it's great to talk to you again thank you everybody